American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. I'm going to provide a little framework for the cartoons I'm going to show you. I'm going to talk about separately published prints and give you a little background on that, and then the uh, political cartoons that, is, uh, that appeared in illustrated weeklies, give you a little background on that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know um, a lot of what I'm going to say. I hope a few of the cartoons you see today are, are ones that you're not familiar with. The separately published lithographic cartoon made its first appearance in the U.S. in the 1820s with the establishment of lithographic printing firms in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. There were, of course, American political cartoon prints that preceded the advent of lithography, but they were copper plate engravings, and they were expensive and time-consuming to produce, which made their appearance few and far between. Also, for the most part, while some of them imparted interesting political opinions, almost all were rather poorly drawn. This changed with the advent of lithography. This new method of printing cut the costs and time of production to such an extent that the lithographic cartoon print suddenly became a viable business opportunity, and the artistic freedom it afforded prompted several talented draftsmen to take up the art. For at least the first half of its 50-year life on the American scene, lithography was the dominant form of visual political satire in the U.S. It had been, has been estimated that somewhere around 800 to 900 such prints were produced during their heyday from the 1820s to the 1870s. Though dozens of printers engaged in the practice, the field was dominated by only four H.R. Robinson in the 30s, John Childs, and then James Bailey in the 40s, and finally the firm of Courier and Ives in the 50s and 60s. During the Civil War period, somewhere close to 200 cartoons were published, talking about separately published prints, with about half coming from the firm of Courier and Ives, and the rest from dozens of different publishers based in New York City and elsewhere. Unlike Robinson, Childs, and Bailey, who were all Whigs and almost never published anything critical of their party, Courier Knives was an equal opportunity offender. They published cartoons praising and criticizing Democrats and cartoons praising and criticizing Republicans. Many of the Courier Knives cartoons lack passion and appear instead to have been produced to cash in on the passions of others. But some of the cartoons are surprisingly strong and memorable, and we'll survey some of them in the coming minutes. How the prints were sold has always been something of a mystery. Some were hawked by newsboys on the city streets. I think this was particularly prevalent in the 1830s and 40s. Some were sold in bulk to campaign headquarters destined for free distribution. This, I think, tended to happen later in the life of the print. And some were sold through retail outlets. The general belief is that most of these prints retailed for about 25 cents, which suggests 
that it was kind of a high-end market. The reception of the prints undoubtedly influenced their print run, but most of these cartoons, I believe, were printed in the hundreds, not the thousands. Now, the history of American humor or satire magazines stretches back to the 18th century when political satire was a dominant strain of mainstream journalism. The most famous early political satire magazine was Salma Gundy, edited by Washington Irving and James Pauling in 1807-08. But none of these early periodicals was illustrated. The 1830s saw a proliferation of comic magazines and newspapers, but the comic cuts they used were to illustrate their content were usually borrowed from other sources. These cuts then were included primarily to break up the type and were not central to the humor. But this changed in the 1840s. In London, Punch was launched in 1841, and its success as a comic weekly, in which the artwork played an important, sometimes primary role in the humor, caught the attention of the English-speaking world. For the next three decades, enterprising publishers and cartoonists in the United States attempted one humor magazine after another. Many perished quickly, but a few persist sorry, but a few persisted, though they hardly thrived. Nevertheless, more people saw cartoons in the various magazines of the period than saw the average separately published print. At the advent of the Civil War, American newsstands were crowded with comic periodicals. One class of magazine was the Quarto Monthly, of which there were two, Yankee Notions and Knickknacks. Both resembled oversized almanacs, full of comic cuts, silly yarns, and pun-filled one-liners. Because they were monthlies, they did not attempt to be particularly timely. That is to say, they did not ignore current events, but neither did they feel obligated to recognize important news. On the other hand, the folio monthlies that more closely resembled the format of Harper's Weekly and Frank Leslie's did attempt to comment on the news, even if they risked being out of date. The three folio monthlies at the advent of the war in order of importance were Frank Leslie's Budget of Fun, the Comic Monthly, and Funny Fellow, all founded in 1859. There was but one Comic Weekly being published in America at the beginning of the Civil War. That was Vanity Fair, a smart and handsome product that highlighted the comic work of H.L. Stevens and drew on the wits of Path's beer cellar for its content. That Vanity Fair, by the way, is not related in any way to any of the other Vanity Fairs that have succeeded in British and American. It should also be mentioned that the three newsweeklies, Harper's Weekly, Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, and the New York Illustrated News, published political cartoons on their back pages throughout the war and occasionally printed a full or double-page cartoon within. Also, the two British humor magazines, Punch and Fun, should not be neglected, if only because Punch, at least, probably had a larger circulation in the U.S. than any of the homegrown comic periodicals, especially in the South. And finally, we should note that the Confederacy had its own news weekly, the Southern Illustrated News, and its own humor magazine, the Southern Punch, both launched in 1862. 
They were not well illustrated, given the scarcity of talented artists and engravers available for such work in the South during wartime. But both did print political cartoons on occasion. So, unlike the separately published prints market, which was dominated by Courier Knives, the periodical field was highly fractured. At the outset of the war, then, there were six New York humor magazines, three New York news weeklies, two London-based humor magazines, and the following year, two Southern weeklies, all of which featured political cartoons and circulated to the American reading public. <coughs> While Vanity Fair would fail during the war, the rest persevered throughout the war and were joined by two more humor magazines before the war was out. All of the northern periodicals were pro-union, but not all were pro-administration. The British and southern periodicals were generally speaking anti-Lincoln and pro-Confederacy. So much for the publishing landscape. Now we will look chronologically at selected cartoons that exemplify various attitudes to Civil War events, so that in the end I hope you will be left with an appreciation for the diversity of viewpoints and artistic talent that was on display from 1861 to 65. I'm going to start off with a few uh, 1860 election cartoons since they presage the, uh, the conflict that followed. This is called An Heir to the Throne or The Next Republican Candidate. P.T. Barnum at the time uh, had an exhibit called What Is It? and it was a deformed African-American who was put on display um, for the quote-unquote edification of uh, the people who paid uh, admission to his museum. Greeley, the great Horace Greeley, liberal editor, or I should say editor of the liberal New York Tribune, um, is on the left here. And he's saying, gentlemen, allow me to introduce to you this illustrious individual in whom you will find combined all the graces and virtues of black republicanism and whom we propose to run as our next candidate for the presidency. Lincoln, on the right, says, how fortunate that this intellectual and noble creature should have been discovered just at this time to prove to the world the superiority of the colored over the Anglo-Saxon race. He will be a worthy successor to carry out the policy which I shall inaugurate. And the African-American says, what can they be? Um, extraordinary expression of a northern hatred toward uh, the perceived policies of the emerging Republican Party. Not to mention a classically racist cartoon. Now we have another Courier and Ives cartoon, which is uh, rather the opposite, in case anyone thought that Courier and Ives had an ax to grind against Lincoln. Honest Abe taking them on the half shell. Uh, this is a, a neat cartoon from a graphic standpoint, because most of the Courier and Ives cartoons are these little set pieces where they've arranged the personalities of the day in realistic positions as if they were on a stage. Whereas this um, is a much more dramatic image than you usually expect from Courier and Ives. 
Um, in this one, uh, Lincoln reflects, uh, these fellows have been planted so long in Washington that they are as fat as butter. I hardly know which to swallow first. <laughs> this is Douglas and this is Breckinridge, two of his opponents in the election. Uh, Douglas is on the soft shell, uh, and meaning that his... Uh, uh, orientation toward the slavery question was considered soft at the time, you know, the uh, states' rights uh, option. And he says, I'm a gone sucker. <laughs> Breckinridge, as representative of the South, is, is on the hard shell. And he says, alas, that ever I should, that ever I should live to be swallowed by a rail splitter. Um, and just a a little note here, you know, it might, to modern eye, the oyster might seem like an exotic uh, reference, but um, in the 1850s and 60s, champagne and oysters was the pizza and beer of its day, and you wouldn't have been able to walk anywhere in New York without seeing a, an oyster house. So two very uh, dramatic... Uh, Dramatically different cartoons, both from the same house, about candidate Lincoln. This is one of my favorite cartoons. This is by uh, William Newman, uh, whom I uh, wrote a book about. I think it's, it's great because it transcends time, and it tells us something about the American political system, maybe political systems everywhere, but particularly uh, the, the tendency of American political systems to elevate someone once they've been recognized. A phenomenon of portraiture showing how the chances of success affect the features of a presidential candidate in the eyes of his friends. Number one, he, his first looks, hideous, cadaverous, repulsive. Number two, as his chances improve, so do his looks. Now he is tolerable. And then being chosen for the nomination, he grows quite handsome even angelic. So we, you know, uh, a very interesting comment on Lincoln's transformation before the American public. So those are election cartoons, just to give you a little taste of what was going on. Of course, Lincoln is elected, South Carolina secedes. Here is a Courier Knives cartoon. While uh, Buchanan is still in power, South Carolina's ultimatum. The peacemaker is aimed right at uh, South Carolina governors uh, Pickens' uh, sensitive parts. And he says, Mr. President, if you don't surrender that fort at once, I'll be blowed if I don't fire. Uh, Pickens says, I'm sorry, Buchanan says, oh, don't, Governor Pickens, don't fire till I get out of office. Uh, Couple things going on. Obviously, Buchanan's timidity is uh, mercilessly caricatured, but also the foolhardiness of what the South is engaging in with the threat of secession. Or I should say, more than a threat. Um, okay, we all know the story of uh, Lincoln 
donning a disguise uh, when an assassination plot is uh, uncovered as he's heading toward Washington for his inauguration. There are a number of cartoons on the subject. I like this one the best because it's the most subtle, uh, if you can call it that. Uh, this, uh, uh, this says, the new president of the United States from a fugitive sketch. And so it's got Lincoln all bundled up uh, with, the, obviously, the pun on fugitive sketch, which was used frequently um, in the, the lingo of illustrated journalism. But so now we've got uh, Lincoln coming into office and uh, his persona emerging in the popular press. Um, I like this cartoon uh, because it's, it's nicely drawn. This is H.L. Stevens in Vanity Fair. Buchanan is an iceberg. Lincoln is the emerging sun. Um, you would take from this that Vanity Fair was vociferously pro-Lincoln. Not uh, true, but they really hated Buchanan. <laughs> Um, and this is actually the culmination of a series of cartoons that Stevens did uh, portraying Buchanan as usually inanimate objects, a candle burning out, a, uh, a bulb with uh, uh, vegetation sprouting from it, frog. Um, he just... Uh, they did everything they could to belittle Buchanan, and I guess Buchanan helped. But um, it's a, I think it's the first uh, that I know of, it's the first orchestrated assault on a sitting president in caricature, one week after another. You would just, when you opened up Vanity Fair, you were looking for this week's uh, demeaning portrait of the president. Okay, now uh, the North is beginning to comment on uh, the emerging events. And this is called Little Bo Peep and Her Foolish Sheep. We have uh, Dame Columbia. Uh, these, are, these sheep represent, uh, well, this is the flock but, uh, of uh, American states, but uh, many of the uh, southern states are straying. And um, in the background, we see the European powers, and they wear crowns, and they're wolves, and they prowl about and say, if we can only get them separated from the flock, we can pick their bones at our leisure. So an assertion of the dangers that await the Confederacy in their weakened independent state. The one of the fascinating aspects of this cartoon is Dame Columbia is saying, sick em, Buck, Buchanan, sick em. I wish poor old Hickory was alive. He'd bring them back in no time. This is uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, dead. Um, and uh, his successor, Buchanan, running away from the fight. Um, but again, uh, represents a hopeful view among the North. There's no uh, angry depiction. The, this flock is part of the family. You know, there's no angry depiction at the South. It's that they're foolhardy, they're making a mistake, they're in trouble, 
if only we had uh, a president in place who would be who could react appropriately, they would come home. Um, but now we're the North is starting to get a little ticked off as the states uh, from the South. You know, there's this drumbeat of secession as one state after another announces joining the Confederacy. This is a very angry cartoon published in Philadelphia. The Southern Confederacy of fact, acknowledged by a mighty prince and faithful ally. So here we have Jefferson Davis wearing saber and spur and Vice President Alexander Stevens next to him holding the list that says the fundamental principles of our government, including treason, rebellion, murder, robbery, incendiarism, and theft. And, of course, they are presenting themselves in front of the devil, and uh, the devil greets the Confederates and says, truly fit representatives of our realm. Um, We've lost some of the appreciation of the devil in pictorial humor. He's become, uh, I guess, something of a joke in 21st century as our uh, religious fervor in some uh, quarters has uh, diminished. But this was a pretty potent charge in the 1860s to accuse someone of being aligned with the devil. Today, I think the the political lexicon, now you compare someone to Hitler. And the, the, the stuff that that brings up among people who hear that is probably similar to how people felt uh, in that more uh, sensitive time um, about uh, saying that someone was in league with the devil. Some of the... Uh, we have uh, Mr. Mob Law, who is the Chief Justice of the Confederacy, some of the other generals. Um, again, a powerful cartoon, not by Courier Knives. Okay, this is the sort of one of the ubiquitous cartoons of the early Civil War. Jefferson Davis is, I, I suppose that's supposed to be a greyhound, and uh, Winfield Scott is a bulldog. They've got a big piece of meat between them that's labeled Washington. And uh, all Jefferson Davis has is some bales of cotton, whereas the, the behind Scott is arrayed, uh, you know, the bounty of the North. Why don't you take it? Um, this was produced in uh, cartoon envelopes, um, other political cartoons, Courier Knives, put out their own edition of this. This is probably the most copied, separately published print of the Civil War. Uh, it originated in Cincinnati, um, and it has been credited to an artist named Frank Beard, who uh, 30 years later gave an interview and said it was his first published cartoon. I have since come to the conclusion that this is not, even though this was published in Cincinnati, this is not Beard's version this was probably done by a cartoonist named Fritz Welker, who later went on to St. Louis and was uh, very successful. But it suggests that even in Cincinnati, they were putting out competing versions of this cartoon. So it really resonated with folks. It's also interesting to note that Winfield Scott 
who, as you know, played a very small role in the entire history of the Civil War, having retired soon after the war began, plays an outsized role in the political cartoons because there was this fevered pitch at the beginning of the war where you know, stuff was just vomiting forth from the presses. And so Scott became the epitome of the stolid, uh, immovable North, um, even though he soon left the scene. Now we've got Lincoln with office seekers. Um, it's one of the first uh, portrayals of a president beset by uh, uh, the traditional office seekers. But it's, uh, um, I like it because it's a sympathetic cartoon of Lincoln. And again, it makes him appear a giant among pygmies, though I'm not convinced that that was the intention of the artist. It was more a, just a humorous thrust at uh, politics in Washington. This appeared, by the way, in the budget of fun. Okay, Punch. Punch had a complicated uh, relationship with the United States. And in the beginning of the war, we, we know all about the anti-Lincoln cartoons that they published, which I'll show you some of before. But it is little noted in the historical record that at the beginning of the Civil War, Punch was vociferously pro-Union, pro-North. And we see it especially in its words. The editorials were harshly critical of the, the slave power. Uh, this is the only cartoon that they published that could be interpreted as pro-Union. Divorce, a vinculo, Latin for complete divorce, uh, which is, was, was a technical legal term about uh, utter, and, uh, utter dissolution of the marriage uh, bonds. Mrs. Carolina asserts her right to lair up her nigger. Now we've got, she's obviously a Herodin, South Carolina with a whip and a, a pistol in her belt. Uh, the little uh, African-American slave is beseeching uh, Uncle Sam, uh, the North, uh, Brother Jonathan, however you want to characterize that figure, in the hopes that he'll be saved. Um, it's a striking figure, because it's a striking cartoon, because there are very few British cartoons that comment directly on the evils of slavery, um, especially after economic pressures asserted themselves in England and the merchant class, concerned about its supply of cotton from the South, became increasingly uh, interested in currying favor with the Confederacy. Uh, an additional factor here was the Trent Affair, where uh, uh, American troops intercepted Southern diplomats headed toward England, uh, affronted the British sensibility of propriety in international law, and that was a turning point for Punch, too, at least ostensibly. Uh, uh, I think the economic question actually loomed larger. Uh, this is a 
unusual cartoon. The old general ready for a movement. Okay, we've, we've got him in a, uh, let's say, a wide stance. And uh, he's got the Jefferson Davis in his lair, labeled Richmond, with the noose ready to catch him. Um, a little bravado among northern, this northern cartoonist, who is probably uh, Louis Morier for uh, Courier Knives. Uh, Memphis, of course, didn't fall until a year later, 62. Manassas Junction, we know, was no fun for the North. Um, but here again, we have the uh, impressive figure of General Scott uh, waiting to capture the South. Uh, some of the comic weeklies indulged in sort of mildly scatological or racy analogies, less than you would think. You know, we have this idea that there was a crudeness about uh, 19th century pictorial humor, um, which I don't think really bears scrutiny. But this is one of the very few Courier and Ives cartoons uh, that has a uh, racy or scatological double entendre. Okay, now we're back to punch. And here's Lincoln with his uh, hair uh, quaffed in such a way to suggest another certain figure with horns. And uh, he is, uh, it's called the latest from America, or the New York eye duster, to be taken every day. The drinks are bunkum, bosh, brag. And it's a criticism, punches criticism, British criticism of um, how the Northern press and Lincoln um, put a positive spin on war news that was anything but positive. This is a surprising cartoon because it's drawn by Thomas Nast when uh, he was working simultaneously for Harper's Weekly and Funny Fellow, one of the magazines I mentioned earlier. Um, for almost 10 years, Nass contributed almost every cartoon in Funny Fellow anonymously. I think there's an 1868 cartoon where he accidentally signed his name uh, and the, the uh, engraver let it go through. Uh, but I think it was a open secret that Nass was doing this work. It wouldn't have required a lot of... Uh, sophisticated digging to find this out. But you never actually see a mention in the press where it says, you know, Thomas Nast, who draws cartoons for Harper's Weekly and Funny Fellow. So uh, it's, it's interesting to, to speculate exactly how much people knew about this. But as you can also see, this is uh, wildly exaggerated compared to his Harper's Weekly work and suggests, I think, a more interesting cartoonist in a lot of ways. But this is called uh, uh, What's the Matter? And, uh, or That's What's the Matter? And uh, basically it's charging the Lincoln administration with negligence. Lincoln's asleep, everyone's asleep, um, while um, the city burns, you know, Lincoln's resting on all of these uh, 
uh, retreats and disasters. Um, very unusual for Nast to draw anything critical of Lincoln, um, but I think this expresses the frustration of the North in 1862. Nothing's happening. You know, we're losing battles. We're uh, uh, waiting on the battlefield. McClellan's not moving. So, uh, you know, this war that they originally thought could be handled diplomatically or hopefully uh, is now dragging on. Lots of people are dying. And the North is getting very frustrated. And they're taking it out on the leadership. This is a cartoon uh, just before Lincoln, this is from Vanity Fair, uh, Lincoln announces the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's got him, uh, it says, what will he do with them? And Lincoln says, darn these here blackbirds. If nobody don't buy them, I'll have to open the cages and let them fly. Uh, so it's a, um, a sympathetic cartoon uh, to Lincoln's political plight around emancipation. I think it's also nicely drawn. You can always count on the Vanity Fair cartoons to be attractively done. Okay, Adalbert Volk, a, new, a Baltimore dentist who was uh, pro-Confederacy. In 1864, he published a portfolio of engravings that he did uh, supposedly in secret at night after his practice, um, portraying uh, the South during the war. And in, on a, in a few occasions, uh, some of them are political cartoons. A lot of them are just sort of pictorial narrative. But of these, of the 30 prints that he produced, the 30 engravings, this one is a scorching indictment of uh, Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. We have his, uh, his foot is on the Constitution. Uh, the inkwell is held by the devil. Uh, we've got a, a picture of the slave uprising in Santo Domingo. Uh, this is John Brown's patron saint. Um, if this was hundred years later, I say, these are the flying monkeys, uh, but uh, just uh, probably uh, ravens, some uh, symbol of death. It's a, uh, uh, it, for all of its potent imagery, it's rather subtle in the sense that it doesn't, um, uh, the caricature of Lincoln, for instance, doesn't engage in uh, gross distortion or anything like that. But the sum of its parts is pretty powerful. Uh, we should note that probably no one saw this at the time. Um, it's unlikely that more than a couple hundred people in Baltimore had even heard of Volk's work. It's possible uh, that... Um, uh, it circulated after the Civil War a little more broadly. In the 1880s, his portfolio was reprinted, and it became notorious, famous, um, and a lot of attention has been placed on him by historians because there's such a paucity of Southern artists that, that we were desperate for any sort of Southern point of view. But it is... Um, misleading 
to put him in the category of a Thomas Nast or, in fact, any of the other artists we've seen because his influence was about as close to nil as you could get since uh, uh, these images were not known to practically anyone during the war. What's his name spelled? Uh, Volk, V-O-L-C-K. Okay, this is, a, uh, this is from the uh, Southern Illustrated News, Masks and Faces, this uh, King Abraham before and after issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Very crude cartoon, but it's got the Emancipation Proclamation labeled January 163 at his feet. He's pulled off his mask. Uh, behind him is the devil. Or the, the, the tr Lincoln is unmasked to appear as the devil. Uh, interesting little addition here of the half-finished Washington Monument, which, in fact, that was its status during the Civil War, an implication of... Um, the unfinished uh, ideals of the Union. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think the crudeness of the cartoon actually heightens its power. There's something grotesque about it that makes the um, the devil caricature even more uh, compelling. But this is the type of thing that of, of the people in the South who were looking at images, aside from Punch, which uh, they probably still had some access to, uh, this was the graphic image that they were exposed to. Now we have a North... So, yeah. Is the authorship of like an image like this, is there anything... Unknown. Uh, I don't believe any of the cartoons that appeared in either of the periodicals, uh, the Southern periodicals, were signed. And, uh, you know, it's just as likely for something that was this crude that it was done by someone in the print house, you know, in effort to, not to literally fill space, but, you know, we could really use a cartoon on the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation and the nearest, the person with any, I mean, uh, it's possible that most of us could draw this. So it wasn't, they weren't looking for the best and the brightest. Okay, this is Vanity Fair. This is the Northern magazine that purportedly uh, supports the Union cause and uh, the Lincoln administration. They were pro-Lincoln, but they were not a pro-abolitionist. They were certainly not pro-African-American. H.L. Stevens was a Philadelphian, but he was a Democrat. And there was a real uh, tension on the magazine. You can see it throughout its run about it trying to position itself to these rapidly unfolding events and being constantly caught between this sort of, you know, blurting out this ugly type of racism and then sort of reining it in and doing something uh, showing Lincoln heroically, and so very conflicted, but I think it also fairly uh, compellingly expresses the conflict of probably the majority of the North. So we've got a black figure with a liberty cap on going to the new place, and the um, contraband says, yeah, yeah, this child on the move to his new situation wonder what sort of person new masses going to be. Uh, 
kind of a poignant cartoon, too, after we know what happened with emancipation and so much of the uh, failed hope of the uh, state of African Americans, especially in the South. Okay, now we have another northern cartoon, not by Courier and Ives, which is pro-Copperhead, kind of a rare occurrence. This is called The Great American Was What Is It? And I'm fairly certain that this is a reference back to the figure we saw in 1860, Uh, but now they're referring to Lincoln. Um, And uh, it's a sort of a political what is it? What's he trying to do? We've got... um, Vallingham is one of the snakes. That's who he's addressing when he says, Oh dear Clement. That's his first name. That's right. Yeah. Right. You are hugging too tight. Look here if you think. To burn my side, you will get foiled. Burnside. Oh, this is this is bounding him. So it's a it's a slightly odd uh, choice use of snakes. I mean, they they're obviously playing on the copperhead idea, but the idea that they're portraying the copperheads favorably, even though they're shown as these sort of deadly snakes. But Lincoln is on the run. Blacks are on the run. The uh, black men saying. Uh, uh, Father Abraham, take us to your bosom. And uh, Lincoln says, go back to your master. Don't think you are free because you are emancipated. Um, It's a complicated cartoon, but it shows this ambivalence in the North toward uh, what Lincoln is trying to do. Uh, He's got the Constitution here and the Union as it was. Uh, tearing it to shreds as he runs. Um, Again, I think an interesting insight into the deep ambivalence of the North. Now we've got the South taunting. The South was cut off from a lot of news in the North. They had their own way of circulating information. But here we have a a portrayal of Lincoln, actually, as a joker, uh, playing with a uh, pull toy, uh, this time fighting Joe Hooker, and it's called uh, Master Lincoln Finds a New Toy with all the discarded generals to the side. Uh, one of the interesting things about this is almost till the end of the war, there were Southern images of Lincoln without a beard. And I think it's one of two reasons. Uh, I think some of the artists... Uh, had not seen images of a bearded Lincoln. I think there was simply, you know, it's almost impossible for us to imagine that in a modern day where we're saturated with visual images all the time. But I think there was, they didn't either, they didn't know it or they were concerned that their uh, reading public would be confused if they drew him with a beard since a significant number of their readers wouldn't have known it. So we continue to see a beardless Lincoln uh, in, uh, portrayed in Southern cartoons. 
Okay, uh, this is another William Newman that was in the budget of fun, and it's called Uncle Sam Clearing the Track, and it shows him riding uh, an ironclad uh, down the Mississippi uh, after the successful, uh, after Grant's successful campaign to clear the Mississippi for uh, U.S. transports. And it's got the powers of Europe kind of in awe of this gigantic Uncle Sam uh, who has uh, turned this feat. And uh, Jefferson Davis says, oh, Johnny Bull, help me skedaddle. And Johnny Bull says, no, Jeff, you can't get into my deal now. Um, again, a bit over-optimistic that things would turn so dramatically t uh, to the North's, North's favor, but Budget of Fund probably contributed more to Northern morale with its celebratory cartoons uh, than any other periodical of the day, excepting perhaps Harper's Weekly, only because Harper's Weekly had um, such a much larger circulation. But they weren't running a double spread uh, center cartoons like this, whereas each month there would be there was another drumbeat for uh, <clears throat> union success uh, in 1864, which of course was the year where there was a lot more to talk about. Um, this is a fun cartoon, final issue of the war, the longest purse wins. And it's got Lincoln saying, better give in, Jeff. You haven't half a chance. Don't you see I've the longest purse, which is the U.S. Treasury? Jefferson Davis with a much smaller sack that's uh, bleeding coins says, uh, no, no, bony. I, uh, I shall... Let's see, what does he say? I... Oh, he says, no, no, bony, I back out. I should... Sorry about that. I should lose... Yeah, I back out. I should lose nosy by it, something like that. The, but the, the point is clear, the arena of war. The North, this is... Uh, uh, the North is finally realizing uh, what historians have confirmed that um, a war of attrition would, is, is all we needed to do to defeat the South because they were short on materiel and on men and, uh, and this is a triumphant Lincoln uh, taking, taking the battle to Davis. I like this cartoon because of the dramatic uh, image of Lincoln sort of commanding the whole center of the action um, the Newman liked to exploit Lincoln's uh, physique for dramatic effect. This cartoon expresses that. Yeah. Now, is this one lewd, uh, or would you say no? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say that wasn't the intent. <laughs> um, there's an interesting inside reference that would have been obvious to, to, to London finance, which is the Mississippi bonds which is these 1837 state bonds that uh, when they default in the early 1840s, uh, Davis is seen as the key state politician for leading to this default. Mm. 
And the uh, at least the, the gossip of the day is that London bankers were preparing what they thought was going to be Stevens and Jones to float Confederate bonds in the London market. And when Davis is elected president, they refused because of this recollection of 20 years earlier. Fascinating. And that's something that Newman would have known right. because he was the first cartoonist, one of the uh, quartet of cartoonists for the London Punch in the 1840s. So uh, for that, that whole decade, this would have been something uh, he was familiar with, uh, British relations with uh, the Southern culture. They're regularly depicted in arenas of combat, um, boxing, um, sword play, beating um, each other up. Um, uh, so masculine physical skill is often the way that the that they're um, represented as thieves. Yeah. A question about the crowd, which seems to allude to different parts of the globe. Is that again referring to the financial? I think it's more about the just that the world was watching. Uh, Newman was very conscious. He had uh, basically fled London. Uh, he was Catholic. Uh, he left Punch because he couldn't stand the anti-Catholicism of the weekly, uh, just like um, uh, his compatriot Richard Doyle. Um, and he found safe haven in the United States, uh, immediately loved the country, loved the freedoms it afforded, appreciated not uh, being so burdened by the class system there. He was, even though he was one of the founders of Punch, he wasn't invited to the celebrated Saturday dinners because he was considered coarse, you know, uh, undereducated. And so he was really sick and tired of that. So he loved the Civil War from the standpoint of tweaking the noses of European powers. And almost all of his cartoons make some sort of effort to uh, portray John Bull uh, in a conniving or difficult space. So this is uh, part of that where uh, Newman kind of unwittingly brought and awareness of foreign affairs to his cartoons, much more so than most of his other colleagues uh, who weren't uh, uh, exiled Brits. So the phony is, is Louis Napoleon, right? Yes. And do you think that Monsieur Rule is just a sort of general John Bull, or is that actually meant to be a recognizable portrait of somebody? That's a general, general John Bull. Yeah, it's very... There's funny portrayals like that. You know, sometimes France, uh, certainly uh, at different times in its history, was portrayed as a female in a liberty cap, you know, during during the commune period. But the Napoleons were so, were bigger than life, and everyone being, you know, that's, that's France. I mean, that's, yeah, that's France. John Bull... You know, it gets complicated. You, you do the prime minister. A lot of Americans may be scratching their heads. You don't want to do the queen. That's disrespectful and uh, inappropriate, you know, especially as she was moving away from political power. So John Bull became the... Uh, and it's, uh, it was safer because it took it out of the realm of we're not criticizing a particular prime minister for his policy. We're just... 
uh, aiming our attack at the whole dang country, you know. So it had a generic quality to it that was useful for cartoonists. But France didn't have a symbol that was so easily recognizable, <laughs> certainly not more recognizable than what a Bonaparte would, uh, would present. Okay, and uh, Courier Knives cartoon during the election cycle, another really anti-Lincoln uh, screed, running the machine. Here we have uh, Chase's patented greenback mill. And he is saying, these are the greediest fellows I ever saw. With all my exertions, I can't satisfy their pocket, though I keep the mill going uh, day and night. This is actually, this is not uh, Chase. This is Fessenden, who was uh, Chase's successor. Uh, seated at the table are Stanton, Lincoln, Seward, Gideon Wells. A messenger hands an envelope to Stanton, and he says, Mr. Secretary, here is a dispatch. We, has, we have captured one prisoner and one gun. A great, a great victory. Um, and then we have uh, Seward uh, talking to a young cadet over on the far right, saying, Officer, I am told that Snooks has called me a humbug. Take this warrant and put him in Fort Lafayette. I'll teach him to speak against the government. Then we've got Gideon Wells in the corner, uh, the lower right, saying, they say the Tallahassee sails 24 miles an hour. Well, then, we'll send four gunboats after her that can sail six miles an hour, and that will just make enough to catch her. Um, so the whole, the whole uh, portrayal is a inept, almost moronic administration, and we have Lincoln in the center of it, leaning back, saying, all this reminds me of a capital joke. <laughs> Curry and Ives then attacks the Democratic candidate. Here is McClellan on the Chicago platform. Uh, the problem with uh, McClellan's candidacy, which was... Uh, driven into the ground during the campaign was that the Chicago platform advocated suing for peace with the South. McClellan, in his letter of acceptance, said that he would never let down his fellow comrades and that he wouldn't do this. Uh, so the Republican Party and uh, a lot of the press made hay over this striking contradiction between the candidate and uh, the nomination the avowed policy of the party whose nomination he accepted. We've got uh, McClellan saying, if you don't like the platform, I refer you to my letter of acceptance. <laughs> and, uh, and then he says, uh, contradicting himself, uh, you see, my friend, I accept the nomination, and of course I stand on the platform. <laughs> the devil addresses Jefferson Davis uh, over here, and he says, uh, well, Jeff, it's no use trying to hold up this rickety old platform. I guess I'll leave you to your fate. Davis replies, I'm in a pretty fix. Weldon Road gone, Atlanta taken, Mobile Fort surrendered, early licked, 
And now when my last hope is in keeping up this platform and getting Mac elected, you who led me into this scrape threatened to leave me. Uh, wonderful charge that, you know, McClellan is a tool of the South. Uh, a Union soldier over here repudiates McClellan and said, it's no use, General, you can't stand on that platform and uh, come that blarney over me. I smell brimstone. And on the other side, we've got uh, an Irishman labeled as a peace Democrat saying, all right, General, if you're in favor of resisting the draft, killing the niggers, and peace with the Southerners, I'll knock any man on the head that'll vote again me. Uh, so again, a powerful cartoon uh, slamming the, this is Ballingham uh, also helping. So they've arrayed all the, you know, the tropes of uh, um, the anti-union forces in this cartoon and made a powerful cartoon against McClellan's candidacy. Uh, again, another Courier and Ives cartoon, this is pro-Lincoln as opposed to the running the machine. And I think this is another extraordinary cartoon uh, worthy of um, a lot of attention. This is your plan and mine. And it's got McClellan offering an uh, olive leaf to the South, uh, referring to the platform, and uh, <laughs> Jefferson Davis with uh, a dagger, uh, his hand on the head of a black Union soldier. And, and the black soldier is saying, General, I am a Union soldier. I have shed my blood in defense of liberty and law. And will you give me back again to slavery? And uh, Davis says, I see the olive branch and I take the nigger and am glad to hear that you are willing to be governed once more by your southern masters. You've got the opposing view. Here's Lincoln with a bayonet aimed at Jefferson Davis's heart and a Union soldier kind of standing guard, an African-American Union soldier. And Davis says, hold, Mr. President, I surrender unconditionally and uh, say that the rebellion is a failure. I beg of you to let me come back into the Union and not to punish me too severely for my madness and folly. And the Union soldier says, ha ha, Master Sesesh, yes, you... You need... You won't... You won't fool with this child anymore. Um, the thing that is remarkable about this cartoon is it posits something that most of the North found, the idea found abhorrent, which was that the Civil War was fought over slavery. Even after the Emancipation Proclamation, there was resistance to this idea. Um, and yet... This cartoon explicitly states that um, um, the choice in the 1864 election is between sort of repudiating our solemn agreement with the African-American Union soldier who had fought valiantly versus uh, Lincoln's desire to make them uh, forever free and to uh, punish Jefferson Davis. Um, what I find extraordinary about this is not that it expresses a minority opinion, 
but the Courier Knives would judge that there was a market for this cartoon. And uh, it's harder to find than a lot of the others. And I think it's probably because it wasn't something that resonated with the public, that for whatever reason, I'm not even sure the Republican Party would have purchased a cartoon like this for distribution in the hopes of helping their candidacy because it wasn't the message that they wanted to put out. Another Courier Knives cartoon, this one pro-McClellan. It's got Lincoln and Jefferson Davis tearing the United States apart and McClellan saying the Union must be preserved at all hazards, the true issue, or that's what's the matter. So we're putting this whole, the, the peace platform versus McClellan's acceptance speech, that's a back burner item. That is largely irrelevant to the claim that the Democratic Party wants to preserve the Union, and Lincoln is satisfied with the idea that it would be sundered on these issues that he has forced onto the national scene, such as emancipation. Another celebratory cartoon by William Newman, Symptoms of Spring, this is early 64, Uncle Abram's crop begins to shoot. <laughs> nice little pun there. Chase's uh, uh, financial policies yielding a, a bright day. Uh, I love these, you know, they sort of look like turnip heads as they progress into becoming soldiers. And the dark days of the Confederacy with uh, Jefferson Davis in despair under literally a black cloud. Um, <clears throat> But again, I emphasize the importance of cartoons like this for Northern morale, even as the, I mean, it's uh, uh, difficult for us to relate to the hopelessness of the North in 64, where they might have entertained the idea of peace with the South, because we say, just wait a couple months. You know, don't worry, it's going to work out in one way or another. Um, because there was, it, it, it seemed very um, uh, ethereal, this idea that total victory would occur anytime soon. It was still this slog, and no one really knew, including, of course, the Lincoln administration uh, until the fall of Atlanta, which was a cataclysmic advantage. So in the spring of 64, you open up the budget of fun, and there's this big cartoon celebrating our military might and the dark days of the Confederacy. Um, great propaganda. Okay, Thomas Nast. Everyone's saying, why the heck haven't we seen Thomas Nast yet? Uh, he was actually a minor player. Well, we did see Thomas uh, earlier in the Funny Fellow Guys. But he was a minor player in uh, the volume of cartoons that were produced during the Civil War. We are familiar with his work because it's been reprinted over and over and over again. But it's important to be reminded that he only did about 12 cartoons like this for Harper's Weekly. He did a lot of, uh, he didn't actually do war reportage. He sat in New York, and when the uh, war correspondents, the artists in the field, would send in uh, art 
uh, relating to the battles, he would redraw it for publication because the artists were often just <laughs> sketches giving the locale of various armies and the terrain, and Nass would redraw it. So we have a wealth of battle drawings by Nass, but he didn't do a lot of these types of uh, sort of set pieces, these uh, dramatic political cartoons. But this is dedicated to the Chicago Convention. Nash really got the ticked off uh, by McClellan's candidacy, saw it as a betrayal. Compromise with the South. We've got Jefferson Davis with his foot on the grave in memory of Union heroes in a useless war. And the wounded veteran bowing in humiliation to a proud Jefferson Davis at Columbia, crying at the grave. It's appeared in September of 64. Powerful political cartoon. Um, and one of Nass' better efforts uh, during that period. Okay, a new magazine enters the field called The Funniest of All. And it was left of the Lincoln administration, was pro-abolitionist, unapologetically pro-abolitionist and uh, pro-freedman, and felt that Lincoln wasn't doing enough. So here we have, so they belittled Lincoln uh, throughout the campaign, uh, even though McClellan was worse. They had initially been a supporter of Fremont until Fremont aborted his uh, candidacy in September. But this has Lincoln, the national joker, salary $25,000 per annum, this reminds me of a little joke. This reminds me of another little story playing on Lincoln's propensity to entertain visitors at the White House with an anecdote. Uh, image of the hospital, image of the battlefield, and then in the center, we've got the uh, throne of liberty on fire. Where liberty dwells, there is my country, uh, waiting for necessity. Uh, so uh, a harsh indictment on uh, Lincoln's policies of habeas corpus and you know, suspension of certain liberties in the effort to fight the war, and um, really unhappy with Lincoln the man uh, with this, the image he projected of... Uh, lightheartedness, if you will, when confronted with all of this despair and tragedy. I'm sorry, did you mention the name of this pro-abolitionist publication? Funniest of all. It's a funny with a PH and all A-W-L. Its full name is the funniest sort of fun and the funniest of all. Um, and all of them were spelled with PHs and stuff. It's really... Uh, Ridiculous. But it started in 64, and it was funded by uh, William Demarest, who was a, uh, whose wife, actually, he, he spent his entire career asserting that he ran the business. His wife was just a figurehead. But Madame Demarest uh, was the first to produce tissue paper patterns, fashion patterns in the United States. And they built an empire based on it. And uh, in 64, uh, Demarest uh, decided to move big time into publishing because he had become so exercised as an abolitionist, believing that his 
point of view wasn't properly being represented in the New York press, he actually bought the New York Illustrated News, which I understand you guys looked at last week. Uh, it was failing. He pumped a lot of money into it. And in 64, it returned to life. There, there, there's, I, as far as I know, there's only one complete file of it uh, in the country. Very hard to find. But it had color, which was extraordinary in its day, hand-colored uh, front pages. And it had political cartoons. And it, it featured news. It couldn't really compete uh, uh, effectively with Harper's and Leslie's because they didn't have the core in the field. But uh, for about six months, it was an impressive magazine to look at. <clears throat> he also, at the same time, established Funniest of Fun as a sort of bitter satirical outlet to go with the news magazine. In September, he folded... Uh, the Illustrated News into his quarterly journal of fashion and created a magazine called Demarest Monthly, which uh, lasted until the turn of the century. Um, and that was a, became more of a sort of a literary slash fashion magazine with color plates and color fashion plates and stuff. But Demarest was, continued to be a crusader through his life. He actually ran for mayor of New York as a prohibitionist, um, and uh, um, uh, kept his politics in the forefront of his career. And the funniest of all, like I said, left of Lincoln, very unusual. It was um, uh, difficult to look at, frankly. The cartoons, even though they were done, uh, this one was not done by Frank Ballou, but Frank Ballou, who was an accomplished artist who I have a lot of respect for, was the uh, editor and the cartoonist. Um, and uh, I think it probably, it may have reflected his politics as well. He was a fairly liberal guy. What happened was Demarest got tired with the toy after uh, Fremont dropped out and uh, his monthly was going well, and he dumped the thing on Frank Ballou, who had come into a little money, and Ballou ran it f until 1867. There are no complete files of Funniest of All available, um, but the period from 64 to 65, we have a good representation of that, and there's, uh, it's a really uh, remarkable archive of uh, anti-Lincoln, anti-McClellan, uh, pro uh, abolitionist cartoons. You said there's no complete files. Is, it, uh, is this the kind of thing that uh, who's got it? Is American imprints? Uh, well, um, they have a few. It's uh, this sounds incredibly self-serving. I have the largest yeah. file, <laughs> 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 um, and in fact, mine dovetails perfectly with AAS. Okay. So they have the issues I don't have, and. Uh, and mine complements theirs. It's, uh, you know, as a periodicals dealer, it drives me nuts that there are these magazines that existed in the 19th century and had some circulation and some prominence. Some of them even had circulations purportedly in, at 100,000. And they're nowhere. They're just nowhere. And paper dealers talk about it. You know, well, it's the paper drives of World War One and World War Two that cleaned out addicts. It's the, it's the uh, erosion of time. 
I think the biggest, cul biggest culprit is the 19th century librarian <laughs> who, uh, Harper's Weekly, you had to have Harper's Weekly. Budget of fun, I'm not putting that in my library, you know? So there were, there's a paucity of dramatic magazines on the theater, paucity of sports periodicals, and paucity of humor magazines because all the librarians cared about was culture and... Uh, uh, there are very few institutions that made any effort to collect this popular culture material. And these days we scramble to try and put together any sort of files. The, the biggest humor magazine of the 1850s was a thing called the New York Picayune. And it thrived for a while. It's got lots of fabulous stuff in it. It was a weekly for 10 years. And we don't even have, we may have a third of the run in existence. And there's no excuse for it except negligence. Um, it's not that you know it wasn't produced in uh, uh, some backwater. Um, it, it was here for anyone to collect. Uh, I think, too, the, a lot of times the people who subscribe to these magazines, uh, not, not talking about librarians, but the public, uh, when they went to bind up their copies of Harper's Monthly or Harper's Weekly, if they in fact saved these things, which you wouldn't have put out on a coffee table, you know, in your, or the equivalent of a coffee table in your parlor, uh, even spending $1.25 to bind them up seemed, I think, to bestow more dignity on them than a lot of people felt. Um, they were very masculine, obviously, uh, because they appealed to voters. And, and I think they were probably middle brow. You know, we see a factor of 10 to 1. No. 50 to 1 sets of punch in the United States versus sets of American humor magazines of the same period because punch was refined and uh, a lot of the American middle class and upper class uh, bowed to the social standards of the British. So having a British political cartoon weekly in your home perhaps connoted a certain uh, distinction. But you wouldn't have any of the magazines we talked about laying around in your parlor. So the, uh, for a variety of reasons, it's really... Uh, drives historians crazy. Um, and the biggest problem is, I mean, we're, we're right on the cusp here with digitalization and uh, someone coming forward, but there's one copy of the New York Picayune of a significant date in a historical society on the Hudson. There's one copy at the Harrisburg Public Library there's one copy in Indiana. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, to find a bound volume is almost unheard of. Um, but, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, the American Antiquarian Society recently turned up a bound volume that was uncatalogued in a St. Louis library that was giving material to the AAS that they no longer needed. It's an unknown period from the history of the magazine. Uh, it revealed 
so many things to the cartoon historian that it's difficult to enumerate them, but one of them is E.W. Clay, who was probably the greatest political cartoonist of the uh, 1830s, great anti-Jackson cartoonist. He's probably the first great American political cartoonist who hasn't fully been given his due, but a good artist and a great cartoonist. He was the art editor of the Picayune for three months and contributed all the cartoons, completely unknown to Nancy Davidson, who wrote the biography of him. And this is the type of thing that uh, um, you, we discover all the time as we're pulling this, these uh, disparate pieces together. Um, and funniest of all is a good, uh, uh, a perfect example of something that deserves more attention. So now we've got Lincoln the Joker, and he says, this reminds me of a little joke. And he's holding McClellan in his hand, uh, the, uh, his opponent for the election. So Harper's Weekly is sort of turning that charge uh, against Lincoln's opponent. Charming cartoon. Lincoln's reelected. This is the this is Frank Ballou, the artist uh, who uh, worked for Funniest of All. He's also uh, he works for anyone who'll pay him. Uh, this is Harper's Weekly. And it's a long Abraham Lincoln, a little longer. And it's a great cartoon. It's reprinted all the time because it's a, a wonderful portrait. But there's also, obviously, unknown to the artist or the viewing public at the time, the little longer proved to be poignant uh, since it was only uh, four months after this cartoon appeared that he was assassinated. London has a different reaction to Lincoln's re-election. This is uh, Matt Morgan, who went on, who came to this country in 1870 to cartoon for Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper. This is a cartoon from Fun, the competitor to Punch, which was even more vociferously anti-North than Punch was. And so, again, we've got that old, that, that trope that we saw before in the Southern cartoon, of Lincoln removing his mask and revealing uh, the skeleton of death. Um, and this is a, um, it would, the original, I mean, the, the printed version of this cartoon would be worth so much more if the reference was to baseball. <laughs> but the Brits, you know, it's cricket. No one gives a damn about it. The most expensive Courier and Ives political cartoon that's sold and that has the, the, the record that was set for a Courier and Ives cartoon because it had Lincoln playing baseball. <laughs> they didn't give a damn that it was Lincoln, uh, but it was because it was an early baseball image. Um, so we've got a stupid cricket cartoon, but with a very, uh, very powerful, uh, you know, even as the war appears to be coming to a close, the British are still hammering away at um, uh, this charge of Lincoln as the agent of death. Okay, Lincoln is killed. And we have Booth here. This is, uh, this is a cartoon by a Philadelphia cartoonist named Meiji. Um, and it's called Satan Tempting Booth to the Murder of the President. Again, we've got the devil. Uh, and this is a, a, it's kind of an intriguing portrait of the devil uh, made to look 
hideous, grotesque, as he whispers into Booth's ear. He seems to be pointing at Lincoln in the box uh, at Ford's Theater, and Booth is kind of staring off as if he's hypnotized uh, by this by the devil's call. This was um, hard to imagine that you'd want to necessarily hang this in your home, <laughs> but it was uh, it was a well. Uh, I mean, it was a well circulated cartoon, and we see a lot of. It's not. Uh, as scarce as a lot of the other cartoons. So we have, uh, we, as, we assume that it was popular. Sorry, how soon after uh, this assassination was this is very This is very quick. Uh, the Library of Congress probably has the entering date, but it certainly would have been in April or early May. Uh, they would have jumped on it. Is his handkerchief supposed to look like cotton? Yes, yes, it, I think it is cotton. Yeah. Um, someone asked me when I presented this before what the hell the peacock feather meant. And uh, it appears in a lot of portrayals of the South, and I think it's a representation of the supposed chivalry and gallantry of the South, and they're just using that image again, tying it to. Uh, the devil as an agent of the South. Um, and then, uh, you know, we had Lincoln coming into Washington in disguise. Here we have Jefferson Davis trying to escape federal troops in disguise. Um, the story was overblown and exaggerated, but he did uh, when he... Uh, was surrounded by federal troops. He left his tent, uh, and he had donned uh, a uh, raincoat that turned out to be his wife's because uh, she was with him during the escape. And so the Union forces, uh, you know, exploded this into the idea that uh, he was so... Uh, Desperate uh, that he was willing to don women's clothing to try and uh, escape the inevitable. Um, and so they've got him in full regalia, you know, a dress, a bonnet. Um, and uh, Mrs. Davis is there, is there and saying, the men had better not provoke the president as he might hurt some of them. <laughs> um, this cartoon probably got was ripped off as many times as the Why Don't You Take It cartoon. There, uh, I don't know if anyone's actually done a catalog of the number of cartoons that were produced with the image of Jeff Davis in women's clothing, but it was kind of the, the coup de grace of the, uh, the Great Southern uh, Rebellion, and the North couldn't get enough of it. I mean, for months. They just you know loved this image. It was produced in uh, every possible uh, way uh, celebrating the um, ignoble end to the lost cause. So I'm happy to take any questions or comments. Uh, we've got a little time, right, Josh? Yeah, okay. I didn't have a chance really to comment a lot on some of the, uh, I know some of the artists are unknown, but could you give a little background on, on some of the uh, 
some of the artists that we don't know as much about? Most, are, most were not unknown. Uh, it is true that there are certain cartoons that we can't identify the right. artists of. Yeah. But uh, there is a, a core of Civil War artists. Um, I think, like I said, we ascribe greater significance to Nast in retrospect because we see it at the beginning of this grand career. And so we think of, well, if Nast was around during the Civil War, he had extraordinary influence. There's even a quote that has been ascribed to Lincoln saying that Nast was our greatest recruiting sergeant. Uh, that was put forward by Albert Bigelow Payne, who was Nast biographer in 1904, and uh, it was undoubtedly something that Nast told him. <laughs> but we, we do not have any evidence prior to 1904 that uh, Lincoln uttered this. So, and Harold Holzer, uh, you know, the great Lincoln scholar, uh, doesn't believe it. So, um, I don't think uh, <coughs> Nass was certainly not the most important. William Newman, I in in the in my book of four years ago, I assert that he was the most important Civil War cartoonist for a number of reasons. He was the one who did the double-spread budget of fun cartoons with the dramatic images. And I say that because he was before the public more consistently than any other cartoonist. He, he uh, drew with the flourishing N. And uh, up until 1938, historians ascribed those cartoons to Nast, even though it didn't make any sense, you know, that he'd be working for five different magazines at the time, working for Frank Leslie's and Harper's Weekly at the same time, but they couldn't figure it out. And Newman was utterly lost to history. No one knew his birth date, his death date. There was no, uh, there was an 1895 history of Punch that gave him a paragraph that suggested that he, after his uh, terrible time at Punch, uh, he left for the United States. Uh, that was it. That was the entire historical record. So I was very excited to meet a British scholar who knew all about Newman in London but didn't know anything about Newman in New York because I didn't know anything about <laughs> Newman in London. And together we put together, uh, we nailed everything down. Uh, so it was very satisfying. It, she found his birth records. I found his death certificate. We, we were able to frame his life. And I also turned up a diary in uh, Missouri that had an extraordinary amount of detail about Newman's work in it. So a lot of first-person account. So Newman, I think, is the greatest cartoonist of the period. The most famous cartoonist of the period was Frank Ballou, who signed his work with the Triangle. Um, and he worked for Frank Leslie's Budget of Fun until he had some sort of falling out with them, and Newman took over uh, working for the budget of fun. Um, he worked, like I said, for anyone who'd pay him. In the latter part of the war, he was doing a lot of work. He was doing most of his work for the for Funny Fellow. I'm sorry, for Funniest of All. Um, uh, Ballou was a great character. And in the 1850s, he ruled American cartooning. He, he churned this stuff out like a madman. Part of the problem was he had no quality control. Uh, he was so interested in making money since he was such a uh, profligate 
and his wife was profligate, that his only, his only concern really was trying to stay ahead of the bills. And so uh, that he did much more work than he should have. And a lot of his cartoons appear kind of hurried. But also, unlike Nass, the re- part of the reason why Nass looms so large in the American psyche is Nass really felt passionately about stuff. And uh, uh, Ballou didn't. Or if he did, he didn't feel it was proper for him to be expressing it in his political cartoons. So even though a lot of his cartoons were clever, well-drawn caricatures, even funny, uh, you don't look at his work and say, wow, this guy was a crusader. So that takes away from his work. Frank Beard, who is the guy that the um, Why Don't You Take It is ascribed to, as his very first cartoon in 1861, he moves to New York and he starts working for the Comic Monthly. And Beard is uh, a young cartoonist at the time and his work is kind of crude, but he's on the scene. Uh, There's a guy named John McLennan who came out of Cincinnati who was an illustrator primarily and he was employed by Harper's and he was probably the most talented draftsman of the period. he, did, he illustrated a lot of Dickens' work in America. He illustrated Thackeray. Very talented guy. Uh, and he did political cartoons during the Civil War, too, which were quite polished, but he wasn't a good caricaturist as an illustrator. And I think he was probably told what to draw, as was his, the pattern of his other work. And he dies in 65, um, lamented by the community, because he really was a... We would know him... We would know more of him... See, part of the problem is these guys published in places like New York Picayune, which we can't find. And so you think, well, they're not important artists because we never see their work. We never see their work because we can't find it. But they were working mightily. And McLennan is someone who has actually, uh, is better known than that only because of his book work that has been preserved. But most of these guys, Frank Ballou only illustrated a few books and they were terrible. And, uh, uh, you know, Nass, of course, goes on to fame. But we sort of, we think of Civil War cartooning as this kind of backwater where nothing interesting was happening. There was a lot happening. It was just sort of on the cusp of American awareness of the power of political cartoons. And so, and I think it solidified uh, the American public's interest in political cartooning in the same way that it solidified America's interest in the pictorial uh, reporting, because finally the newspapers were talking about something that was just vitally important to so many people that they couldn't get enough of it. And I think the cartoons spoke to that same need. Uh, so you got uh, a half dozen guys in New York. Another fascinating thing for me, being in New York City, about four miles down the road, Fifth Avenue, they were all there, clustered around. You know, 150 years ago, They all worked on the same two or three blocks in Printer's Row. They saw each other all the time. They drank till two in the morning together. Uh, They argued about politics. They uh, tried to take each other's jobs. They, uh, uh, you know, were, were friends and enemies. And it all happened here. Everything, every image that you saw, except for one or two published in Philadelphia or Cincinnati, was published within walking distance of where we are now, and all of those guys 
you know, lived in New York, breathed New York, the publishers did the same thing, and they were part of this really teeny coterie. You know, you see this panoply of images and you, um, you don't appreciate that the world of American publishing was really small and it existed in this in three or four blocks of each other and everyone knew each other and everyone uh, you know had opinions about each other it was a fascinating little world and we you know the the world of publishing today is so expansive and global that we can't fully appreciate how the uh, this method of communication was in the hands of fewer men than you could you know that would you know, it would be half the size of this group. All the major players would sit at two or three of these tables. It's, uh, you know, a huge change in communication. Uh, I have a question about those regional sources. I'm really interested to look at the New York Wall Street especially Southern Wall Street, especially Southern Wall Street, where, where are some of the best archives? Well, uh, a guy named John Adler has done an extraordinary service with Harp Week, which some of your institutions must own. Uh, he did a subset of Harp Week called uh, uh, Illustrated Periodicals of the Civil War, which usually comes with the subscription to Harp Week. Um, it's very expensive, and a lot of institutions can't afford it. Some institutions have formed a consortium. It's not really expensive. What, five to $10,000, something like that. But it, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's an unbelievable resource. And he's got as close to a complete file of the New York Illustrated News as was ever assembled. He's got as close to a complete file of Southern Illustrated News, which I sold him, um, he's got a complete file of the Southern Punch, uh, which he got out of a Richmond, I think it's the, uh, the Richmond Historical Society Library. So he's done that digital work. Unfortunately, right now it's locked up in copyright, you know, uh, which is unfortunate. I think that could change pretty soon. Um, as far as I know, AAS still has the best collection as spotty as it is. Um, New York Public has a great collection if you can, you know, if they will deign to let you actually look at anything. Same thing with the Historical Society. Um, but yeah, locating sources is difficult. Oh, there is a good book published 10 years ago called uh, From Rail Splitter to Icon, which is on your reading list. And it's especially useful in the back because Gary Bunker, had, did a sort of um, uh, a bibliography of located sources, and he told, he itemized the periodicals of the period and said who had the best holding of them. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, well, I kind of follow up on Hillary's question. I was just wondering if you could possibly make your wonderful PowerPoint available to us. Um, so these images would be wonderful for teaching, and some of them I haven't seen before. And um, he, He's got them all. <laughs> and then I have another question, too. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, 
your assertion that these don't necessarily have a lewd or a racy connotation, especially if they were publications that you wouldn't set out on your coffee table necessarily or wouldn't save. And I'm especially thinking of the context of kind of antebellum periodicals where there's a lot of you know sensational press and sporting press that yeah. is very explicitly racy and you right. know very popular and that that's sort of a context that some readers and, and viewers of these might be familiar with. Um, I guess uh, I approach that subject with caution because uh, <laughs> even though they love double entendres and puns and stuff, um, I don't know if we can assert with certainty um, whether uh, stuff like the purse cartoon was intentional. You know, I mean, William Newman was a good Catholic. I. I just think that that probably would have been overstepping the line if he thought he was actually uh, making a sexual reference there. I think he would blush at, at that notion. That doesn't mean that in other, other times you're exactly right. There's a cartoon from 1852, which I can't believe, and I can't believe no historian has drawn attention to it, but it's got... Uh, Winfield Scott, who's running for president, on a uh, rooster. And it's got Franklin Pierce behind him on a goose. And it's a pro-Scott cartoon. <laughs> you, were, you were alluding to the, the images of being in the arena. The the trope that's most often used for the presidential race is race. And it's, it's so boring. You know, you can go back to 1824, you've got the race image, the race image. And it's, uh, most of the time, they really are boring cartoons. They're not uh, particularly well done. It's, uh, but um, in this case, it's got Winfield Scott saying to Pierce, um, Ha ha, I'm in the lead. I bet you wish you had my cock. <laughs> I, you know, I looked up the derivation of cock, and it goes back to the 16th century as a slang for the penis. I can't believe they published that cartoon without knowing. I mean, that's an example of one where... It came out in... 1852. Where in... It was a Curry Knives cartoon. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, it was a T.W. Strong cartoon. It was by the a publisher of uh, Yankee Notions. But it was of that same ilk. And, uh, you know, I mean, that one seems to me to defy the odds that they weren't, they, that wasn't a very masculine audience, and they wanted to uh, get a, a reaction because of it. And the same thing with the movement. But... When you get to more subtle stuff, I don't think subtlety was their strong suit. So I think uh, if they're banging you over the head with the pun or something, you can be sure that they wanted you to get the point. Um, but it, you know, it's a it's a delicate thing. You don't you don't want to overread into the text. I have a question. I, I don't know. I mean, you've been really helpful in describing the political diversity of the cartoons. Their geographical diversity, how they're no. Well, it sounds like they were from different parts of the country initially. Well, oh yes, New York. right. New York and was then, where everything happened. And then there was the socioeconomic yeah this diversity. I'm I'm trying to see if there's any have you know of any minority um, 
um, representatives, either women or mixed race or black Americans who were Un, you know, maybe right. not published in the larger. Right, no. Um, women didn't. Seems, I know we're getting a masculinist, white masculinist right. viewpoint here, and women and, and non-white right. folks are representatives. No. As far as we know, uh, there was no women cartoonists before the 1870s and no female political cartoonists until the 1890s. Wow. Uh, as for African Americans, uh, at the emergence of the African-American press, mm -hmm. especially around the turn of the century, mm -hmm. uh, and when printing technology made publishing daily political cartoons in the paper uh, affordable, you started to see the emergence of black cartoonists in the African-American press. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until the Great Depression and World War II that African-Americans had anything published in the mainstream press. It was just, you just didn't do it. And women, uh, really until recently, there have been female political cartoonists on newspapers starting in the teens, but they were few and far between, and it's really only been a very recent phenomenon uh, if since the 60s and 70s that women have emerged with a real voice in uh, cartooning and, and the, uh, you know, graphic satire. Uh, but socioeconomic is an interesting point. There really wasn't, I think most of these guys uh, were semi-impoverished. And, you know, again, today we think, oh my God, cartoonist on Harper's Weekly. That's, you know, he's at the pinnacle of his profession. Uh, Nast was decently paid. But most of these guys, you know, they'd be offered the editorship of a magazine and they'd be like, geez, no possible way. Because they knew what they'd have to do is work for 16 hours a day and then probably not get paid at the end of the week. You know, so it was always a charity case. And there's record after record of these cartoonists being, uh, you know, Frank Leslie owing them for three months worth of work, six months worth of work. Uh, trying to done, you know, go, going over and over again back to publishers, asking them to be paid, and the publishers putting them off, and uh, they really lived hand to mouth. And there was no, there was very little glory in the work. There may have been glory within their little circle, but they certainly weren't celebrities by any stretch of the modern imagination, and uh, most of them existed under the radar, you know, they, one of the frustrating things about 19th century history, when you, you want to research the 19th century, is there really wasn't a good interviewer in America, you know, period. And if the, you were lucky enough that at the end of a, a cartoonist's life, someone would interview them, invariably the thing would say, uh, the facts of this man's life are too well known to go into, you know, and you're like, because uh, we know nothing about them, you know. And I, I firmly believe that the interviewer didn't know anything either. They were just so lazy. And there was no standard of journalism that would require you to be, you know. So those few interviews we do have that are really probing are fantastic. And most of them are in newspapers, which we still have in mind yet, you know, because the vast majority of newspapers aren't digitalized. So there's a whole, there's still a whole wealth of information out there that we will stumble upon eventually. Mm -hmm.
Um, but for now, uh, piecing together, you know, NAST is well documented. Uh, I hope to write something on Baloo, but uh, the outlines of his life are very vague. Uh, we've done the William Newman. No one has ever written anything substantial about McLennan. Uh, these, these artists are um, largely unheralded, and uh, uh, it's, it would be really valuable to see someone try and parse their politics and... Uh, uh, I mean, it's that, of course, is dangerous, too, because, like I said, these guys work for hire. And so if Courier and Ives said to Lewis Morier, do an anti-Lincoln cartoon, the next week they say, do a pro-Lincoln cartoon, he'd do whatever they asked. We don't actually know his politics, and we never will. Uh, but it's nice to know that we, do, we will never know his politics. I mean, that at least we can say with some certainty the publisher dictated this. We can't even say that with certainty with some of the other work that we're looking at. This one's a little late, so I apologize if you did this at the very beginning of your talk, but I think it would be a target group for me if I moved into teaching. Could you muse a little bit about the difference between today's work and cartooning and the local Uh Well, you know, like I said, the Civil War represents sort of the beginning of the great period of American political cartooning. And I'm not just talking about mass ascent. I'm talking about the sort of cultural awareness of political cartoons. Prior to the Civil War, there's a lot of breastfeeding about how we're not as good as the British. And you see that over and over again. Every time someone publishes a periodical newspaper, it's, uh, you know, we, the America deserves a paper as good as the London Illustrated News, and we're going to give it to you. Well, they don't. Uh, over and over again, they don't. They can't compete with the sophistication and the beauty of the Illustrated London News. But we make these attempts. So there's this huge inferiority complex, the same as in American literature, where we're constantly trying to prove that we have a distinctive American voice. And, and it was true, too, in cartooning. And it was, you know, don't slavishly imitate the British. Don't, the very earliest cartoonists who I didn't talk about or who I alluded to in the copper engraving period, tended to just rip off British artists and do a really crummy job of it. So they weren't even original in their badness. Um, but the Civil War cartoonists, you know, things are coalescing. There's this exciting new interest. They're actually being solicited by publishers. Give me more of this stuff, you know? And it's the beginning, it's the, we begin to see the foundations of a stable profession. In 1876, uh, Joseph Kepler comes along and founds Puck, which is the first successful American humor magazine. And uh, anyone who has some time on their hands, go to the Puck building at, on Houston. It's spectacular. It's got nine-foot statues of Puck holding up the mirror to the world. And it's one of those things where if you're just walking by, you go, what the? It's, it's one of those. It, it's a beautiful building inside. It's been renovated recently, and they've got a display of Puck magazine inside. So it's fun. It's worth the trip. Um, but so Kepler, uh, Nast had become the first uh, a celebrity journalist, really, uh, who wasn't an owner or editor of a paper. Everyone knew Thomas Nast because of the Tweed 
ring in 1871, his campaign against the Tweed ring, and then his campaign against Greeley's uh, uh, presidential campaign in 1872. So he became a superstar, went on the lecture circuit, people paid good money to see him. Um, and he sort of establishes this idea of the political cartoonist as a hero, as a crusader. And a lot of younger cartoon, cartoonists who emerge and in 1900 in newspapers always cite this you know, influential role that Nash played in their youngest years. They're lying in front of the hearth looking at pictures of Harper's Weekly and you know, uh, being amazed at what this man was able to achieve with his pen. Kepler comes along and establishes, he owns a magazine that makes him a multimillionaire. He's the first person, first cartoonist to control the uh, vehicle for his work. Becomes fabulously successful, very happy. You know, it was, it came to him, uh, uh, he was the same age as Nass, but his fame came 10 years after Nast, and uh, uh, it was so sweet. Um, uh, he just was, uh, it was the realization of a dream, and the streets of New York literally were paved in gold for him. And, uh, and that raised the level of cartooning even further, this idea that a cartoonist could control uh, the vehicle of his ex expression. He could say what he wanted because he owned the Ding Dang magazine. Uh, in 1884, we begin to see this earlier, but in 84 we usher in this new period where printing presses evolve so that with stereotyping, you can actually reproduce a political cartoon in a daily paper. It's too laborious with the woodcut, as you know in the discussions of the pictorial press. You can't turn the stuff out fast enough to be topical. But the uh, advances in printing allow this to happen, and in 84 we begin to see not daily political cartoons, but huge political cartoons taking up uh, the front page of newspapers uh, periodically. By 1900, there isn't a newspaper in America that doesn't have a political cartoonist. So that's where you see, that's where the profession has finally arrived. It's a Faustian deal, though, because none of those cartoonists control uh, the vehicle that they're employed on. There are literally thousands of cartoonists by this time uh, who make a living drawing political cartoons, and then even more drawing comic strips. But they're all in the employ of Hearst and Pulitzer and Scripps and uh, McCormick. And the cartoon in the beginning is a big sell, splashed all over the front page, full page. You know, They're very impressive. They look great on the newsstand. And the cartoonist is, is a hero like never before uh, uh, because... Uh, well, I should say it's diluted because now there's lots of heroes and it's not just Thomas Nast anymore in Harper's Weekly. But everyone is certainly a hero in their own hometown and there these people are big men on campuses, you know, uh, in, in each of their hometown. Uh, but slowly, you know, graphic arts and photographs uh, hold sway in the American media and the political cartoon has moved off the front page, which was surprisingly still a convention until World War II. 
uh, the Chicago Tribune, a lot of newspapers put their political cartoonists right on the front page. The idea of doing that today is ridiculous, you know. Uh, there's so many more important, you know, you can talk about Tom Selleck and his wife on the front page. Why would you want to have the opinion of, you know, some cartoonist there? So they're relegated to the interior page, and that relegation, it, they become less and less important in the history of newspapers. But I will say in the 70s and 80s, when I was getting excited about political cartooning, they were still big men on campus, you know, they were, and big women on campus. They still held sway when they were uh, given the Pulitzer Prize. It was a big deal. But they've gone down with the ship. As newspapers' influence has evaporated, the political cartoonist is now this orphan. And they're trying to establish themselves online. And there are any number of cartoonists who are quote-unquote highly popular online. You know, they get lots of hits. No one knows them in the public context. Um, so the problem with cartooning in the 21st century is that it has to be a choice. You have to go to the site to look at it. Uh, you have to care about the cartoon in the first place. The great thing about the newspaper was it was in your face whether you liked it or not. And so we're really seeing the death of American political cartooning as we've known it for 200 years, as it you know was in the fringes of the American consciousness, it moved toward the center, became increasingly powerful, increasingly important, influenced elections. You know, could anyone actually think that a cartoonist could draw? I mean, I know we have the New Yorker cover of the Obama fist bump, and that was controversial and stuff, but it didn't influence an election. It was more of a uh, tempest, you know, a media tempest, and everyone was piling up on each other to make to express an opinion about it. But the idea that that a cartoon could, uh, or a series of cartoons, can influence an American election, it's gone. So it's really fallen from its great estate, and um, I think it provides a picture into the 19th century popular mentality in a way that practically nothing else does maybe the popular theater, uh, uh, some writings, you know, some popular writings, but the visual impact of the cartoon on its readers and expressing opinions that were popularly held as, you know, every single one of these cartoons was not an outlier. There was a significant portion of the population that embraced the opinion that, were, that was expressed in, the, in those cartoons. Um, it's a great, you know, I'm all for digging into census records and uh, insurance maps and things like that to uh, get a new look at the 19th century, but I still think uh, political cartoons are underrated as a window into uh, popular sensibilities. I would like to thank you for your presentation. Thank you.